to be with you. And as John Lee has finished readiness evaluation and launch and is getting ready to start raising support, I thought it would be a good time to try to visit your church and share a little bit about our Mission to the World team that we're part of as well, and then also the work that we focus on in the village. So I will do that first before I share the sermon. So as I mentioned earlier, we're part of the Mission to the World team, and our vision is that we want to see a Christ-exalting indigenous church planting movement in Cambodia that bears witness to the presence of the kingdom of God, both here and to the ends of the earth. And to see that happen, we've divided it up into three critical elements that our team wants to focus on. The first is a pipeline of equipped leaders. The second is a core of growing disciples. And the third is a model of a maturing church. So what I want to briefly do is give a small snapshot of one of the things that we're doing and one of the things that John will be helping with in our village. And what it is, is one of the ways that we've been reaching out to our village and the villages around us is through English outreach classes to students that attend the Khmer Public School and either during their lunch break or when they're free after school, they come to our house and they study English with us for either an hour or an hour and a half. And the way we've made those classes evangelistic is the first 30 minutes of class, we teach the Bible in Khmer, either through singing Christian Khmer hymns with them, reading story Bibles with them, or teaching the shorter catechism in Khmer to them. So that's the first 30 minutes of class, and then the next 30 minutes to 60 minutes of class, we teach them English for the appropriate level at which they're at. So I want to tell you the story of one of the students that had been part of the English outreach classes. So the young man here in the picture, his name is Belong. So Belong started studying with me when he was in sixth grade, when I first moved to the village. This was before my wife Soka and I were married. So Belong, before he started ninth grade, became a believer and became a member of our church plant in the village. Here's a picture of us playing volleyball or basketball together. And then in 12th grade, he kind of started running with the wrong crowd, so to speak, and started to be fairly concerned about him. At the end of 12th grade, Cambodians, they have a national exam that they have to pass, and there's a lot of pressure on you to do that. It doesn't matter how you've done in high school, it's only based on your national exam that you take. It would be maybe equivalent of basing everything on the ACT or the SAT here and not considering in your high school GPA. So under the pressure, I think, instead of focusing on his studies, he just started to go out with friends to try to run away from the pressure. So at the end of 12th grade, he failed his high school exam and didn't really know what to do with his life because there's a lot of, of shame involved in that, not only for yourself, but for your family as well. So we met with him and we told him that we still wanted to give him a chance to go to college and to help him financially to do that. So. He just finished his, he's in his second year of college now, and he lives at one of the churches in Phnom Penh that our Mission to the World team works with, Redemption in Christ Church. And the year after, you can, you can try to retake your high school exam. So after he finished his first year of college, he retook his high school exam, and this time he passed. So that was good to see, and he's part of the church there. He comes down once a month and helps teach children's Sunday school, and he's studying English in college. 
And from time to time, he will send me some of the English assignments he's working on and ask me to check something over or something. So um, a couple weeks ago, he, he sent me this message and said, can you look at my English assignment? And I was kind of busy, and I thought, oh, I don't know if I'll look at it or not. But anyway, I opened it up, and I, I, uh, it brought a tear to my eye. You'll see why. So I don't know if you can read it on the board or not, but I'll read it to you. Everyone always wants to have a good life, a happy family, get a high salary, to reach their goal and to get their dream job. Not all people's dreams have to be about money. Some just dream that they will only have a simple or ordinary life with their family. That is enough for some people. When I think about it, it reminds me of one person that in my mind, he is one of the successful people. His name is Luke Smith. Luke Smith is a missionary that came from Greenfield, Illinois, United States. He works with Mission to the World as a missionary and as a pastor. In 2009, he's left his family and his hometown to come to Cambodia. At that time, he came to the countryside and taught English to the children in the village like me. He got married to a Cambodian woman in 2011, and now they have two children. He taught me since I was in sixth grade, and now he continues to support me. Not only me, but there have been older generations that he supported, and now they have finished their studies and have a good life too. He had his own house in the village and still helped the younger generation, and he had his own church in the village also. That is part of his success. For me, the biggest success is that he told his students how to get salvation too. He helped us, encouraged us to believe in Jesus, and let us become the sons and daughters of God. And that is the biggest success he had. I always, I always love the way he lives. In conclusion, for my opinion, success does not mean that you are very rich, have a luxury or sports car, or have much money, or live a modern life. But success is just living in an ordinary life, just simple things that can make me smile and satisfied for my life on this earth. So sometimes it's hard as, as you work in ministry, and we spend a lot of times working with high school kids, and sometimes you don't know if it's sinking in or if they get it. So this was encouraging, especially for Belong, who certainly had his ups and downs in the time that we have known him. So not, not only um, is he in his second year of college, but my wife and I also do some translation work. We've translated the Shorter Catechism into Khmer, and we know some other groups are working on translation material as well. So one of, one of the leaders of a group, um, Action Cambodia, they translate a lot of stuff from Desiring God and such. So he sent me an, a message through Messenger, and he asked me, he said, do you have any young men who have studied English with you and Soka in the village who also are believers and know their Bible, know a little bit of computer? He said, it's really hard for me to find those type of people, and I was wondering if you had somebody who was maybe, maybe in college, could work as a paid intern with me, and I could try to to bring him up and train him. So I said, well, I have one. Um, his name's Belong, so you can, you can interview him if you want to take him on, take him on, but <laughs> I'll, I'll introduce you and leave it at that. So anyway, he interviewed and he got the job. And this is um, a picture of, of Belong working at his computer, working on some translation stuff. And this is the group that recently translated the Jesus Storybook Bible into Kamai. So it's a cool connection that a student who I've been teaching sixth, sixth, sixth grade, watched grow up in the faith, and is now um, using his gifts that he learned um, English and the Bible and using it for God's glory in the work of translation. So how does John fit in this? I, w I was going to... Um, <laughs> it's babysitting, no. <laughs> um, so John, as, as you know, is going to be spending most of his time working with us in the village 
And one of the main ways we spent our time is through this English outreach. So John will be helping us in that. We'll be teaching some of the classes and also discipling young men like Belong and others. And then we'll also be helping our team with administrative work. So I just kind of wanted to give this snapshot of one of the students who have come out of the English outreach. And we have a, a number of others and show you what John will be focusing on and how hopefully God can use him in that as well. So thank you. It's a real privilege for us to be able to be here. We've hosted several of you on short-term teams in our village and we appreciate your prayers. We especially appreciate your care packages. I always tell John, um, we have friends in, in Southern California and they send us things like uh, packets of chia seeds when we get care packages from them. Um, but the, the care packages from ELM are always filled with chocolate and, and actual good stuff, so <laughs> keep it up. <laughs> um, so as Pastor Stephen mentioned, this is my 10th year in Cambodia, our ninth year of serving in the village, and it's a joy, but it's also challenging, and I think you can realize that as you live and as you work here, as you're part of ministry in your church. I think for every story like the one I just told you, I probably have another 10 stories of, of disappointment and sorrow and lament. And I think that's true of ministry anywhere, certainly true of ministry on the mission field, and I'm sure that you have experienced that too for those of you who are serving in ministry and serving in the church here and just your life in general. So the question I want us to think about today as we turn towards the passage is what keeps us going in times of difficulty, especially in times of difficulty in ministry, when the disappointments mount, when it seems like things are not going the way they should. How do you keep going when it seems like no one takes the word of God seriously? How do you keep going when the people of God are marginalized and mocked and laughed at? So we'll be looking at a passage in the book of Micah. So Micah lived in a time such as this. His name means who is a God like you? He prophesied for 20 to 25 years during the reigns of three kings of Judah. And Micah's job was to point out the sins of both the southern and the northern kingdoms. And also to warn them against the impending invasions of Assyria and Babylon that would be used as instruments of God's judgment. So our passage today is Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. It is a prophecy of a future time. A future time much unlike the time of, of hypocrisy and idolatry that Micah found himself ministering in daily. So have you ever seen a mountain close up? So what's the tallest mountain in the world? You probably all know, but think about mountains and how big they are, why we marvel at them and why we want to see them. Our passage today talks about the mountain of the Lord. And listen as I read the passage how the mountain of the Lord compares to the other mountains around it. So let's listen with reverence to the word of God. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as we study your word, that you would protect us from the evil one who wishes to come and snatch it away, that you would guard us from the cares of this world which wishes to choke out your word, but instead that you would send your spirit to prepare our hearts to receive your word with joy and produce fruit and abundance in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So I thought about giving this sermon the title of, Do You Like Farming? or Farming is a Foretaste of Heaven. Because as you can see in verse 3, a day will come when the people of God will be doing a lot of plowing and pruning. So prepare yourself. So it doesn't bother me having grown up on a farm, but I don't know how you feel about that. So returning to the question at hand, what keeps us going during difficult times in ministry? If you think you and I have it hard, we'll look later at Micah and what he had to endure. But in the midst of difficulties of the ministry, God gives Micah the vision of a future expansion and spread of God's kingdom. In the midst of living in a world of chaos and uncertainty, Micah is given this vision of the mountain of God with people flowing up to worship at the mountain of God. This passage speaks to us today about reaffirming the reality of God's present and coming kingdom and encouraging us to faithfully walk after God in the midst of ministering in a world that often seems directly opposed to God. So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days. So how do we solve this matter of timing? When will this happen? When will the latter days that Micah is talking about come? Or have the latter days already started? In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And also in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches his sermon, he sees the events of Pentecost fulfilling what the prophet Joel said would come to pass in the last days. So with Christ's first coming ushers in a period of time that the Bible refers to as the last days. Often when we talk about the unfolding of God's kingdom, we use the language of already and not yet. What is already a present reality and what is not yet happened, but will happen in the future. So Micah's vision can be looked at in the same way, I think. Some of what he says is future, but some of what he says has already started and then some has yet to come. So returning to the passage again, Micah says, In the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. So in Micah's times, shrines to pagan deities or false gods were built on mountains. One commentary lists four reasons why this was so. First, 
it showed the deity's presence with the people. Secondly, it showed the deity's abiding victory over chaos. Thirdly, it was a gateway into the deity's heavenly presence. And fourthly, it showed the deity's rule over their territory. The Canaanite shrines in the Old Testament, as you're probably aware, were often referred to as the high places. They wanted a place to be closer to the heavens and lifted up around the surrounding lands. So they built their altars to their false gods on the highest place that they could find. When we moved to the village, Soka mentioned to one of the students that she wanted to go and visit the mountains that were behind her house. And the student told her, when we get close to the mountain, I'll go with you, but you have to be careful because there's more spirits on the mountain and you have to be careful what you say. If you let something slip, say something careless or offensive to them, they'll bring curses on you. So keep your mouth shut if we go. So a theology of, evala of evelation, it's still present. The tallest places win. They have more spirits and more power than other places, other low-lying places. When you go through Cambodia and you look on the mountains, it's a popular place to build Buddhist temples high up above the land, a place of prominence and power. So what Micah is saying that the mountain of the house of God, what is he saying about it? Micah is saying this to all who do not worship God. Do you think your God, your spirit, your deity, your idol is powerful? Do you see its height as offering protection or provision for you? Offering a pathway to heaven and eternity. There will come a day when the mountain of God will tower above all other mountains... The mountain of God will be lifted up above all other hills. The mountain of God will be what Mount Everest is to the mountains of the world. The mountain of God will be what Bontanat Capital Skyscraper is to Phnom Penh. That's the biggest skyscraper in Phnom Penh. Hopefully, if I looked on the internet correctly, it will be what Comcast Technology Center is to the skyline of Philadelphia, or One World Trade Center is to the skyline of New York City, that it will tower up above all the other mountains in a place of prominence and victory. It is showing that God is supreme. He is all-powerful. He rules not over a small piece of land or a village or a country, but he is powerful over all. God's mountain to the dismay and disappointment of the others who do not follow him and run to mountains of false hope, whether it be Buddhist or ancestor worship or power or money or sex, God's mountains will tower up and tower over them, showing that he alone is powerful and worthy to be worshipped. God's mountain rises up to show that he is present with his people, that he has victory over chaos and uncertainty, that through his mountain is the only way to enter into the heavenly realms. And he rules not only to a limited territory or a village, but he rules the whole world and the whole universe. Well, should we be measuring the mountain of Zion in Israel? Is that what we're waiting for? I think the New Testament tells us that this is a picture of a spiritual reality. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24 says this, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering." And to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the true Mount Zion, and his reign and dominion towers over all others, just as the mountain in Micah's vision did. Going back to the passage, the passage says, and the peoples flow to it. So which is harder, walking uphill or downhill? Of course, walking downhill is easier. As I mentioned, we have some mountains close by, so we had our, our first summer intern about six years ago. His name was Sam, and he was hanging out with the young boys in the village, and before he went back to the United States after the summer, they took him to the mountain, they climbed up part of the mountain. So the next intern, they heard, oh, this was kind of a going away thing for Sam, can we do that? So then I had to organize it, and we took a group of students, and we climbed partway up the mountain. And then the next intern heard, and they're like, can we do that too? So we did that too. And in the period about four years ago, in the period of about six weeks, we had three summer interns either come or go. So um, Becca, we took her up to the mountain and walked partway up. Whitley, we took her to the mountain and walked partway up. And by the time Brennan, the third summer intern for the summer, was getting ready to go back, we took him to the mountain and we said, there it is. If you want to go walk up, I'll stay here and you can go walk up with the students. <laughs> because walking up and hiking is not easy, right? So think about it. We see this flow of people flowing up the mountain. It is against the way that things usually work. It's against the feed of gravity. So the shocking thing is that Micah says the people are flowing up. Gravity pulls things down, but the gospel is drawing people up, pulling people out of their sin, out of the world, and away from the grip of Satan. God's, powerful, God's power is at work, and people are flowing in to worship at the mountain of the Lord. How powerful is the gospel? Like a powerful river flowing not downhill, but uphill. It comes from God. It is the opposite of the way things usually work, of the way things usually flow. It's a supernatural power. The drawing of God is miraculous. What do we call it in Reformed theology? We call this irresistible grace, that God's grace is pulling people irresistibly to him. Verse 2 says, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. This is not some local phenomenon that Micah is talking about, but a worldwide one, one of many nations, all peoples coming. In John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus alludes to this. He says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. And I mentioned earlier that it is helpful to think about this in the already and the not yet. That we are in the last days and we are in the period of time when the nations are coming to the mountain of God to worship. That is coming to faith in Christ and filling and growing his church. But this is also a reality in its completion that we look forward to that we see in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7. When it says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. 
So why do the nations go to Mount Zion? Let's look again at verse 2. It says that he may teach them his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the nations are come, coming and they're asking, how do we learn about God? We want to know more about him. So longing to know more about God, longing to know more how to walk in his ways and to walk in his paths. These are people who are excited to learn about God. So an excitement, this longing, is something that marks all people who are true believers. An excitement to learn God's word should mark all of God's people's lives. They do not just want to learn, but they want to apply it to their lives. Their lives are changed because they have been taught God's word. How many of you ever, ever listened to Truth For Life, the teaching ministry of Alistair Begg? Even if you haven't, the tagline for it is something that certainly goes with what we're seeing in this passage. The tagline for it says this, where the learning is for living, and that's what we see in this passage. They're not just coming to learn, but they're coming to learn and to live out God's word. So the word of God is received with joy and reverence, and it produces fruit and obedience in their lives. And is not this the words of the Great Commission, teaching them all that I have commanded you? The last part of verse 2 shows us the reason why the nations have come to Christ, the true Mount Zion. It is because the law of God and the word of God has gone out, so that as a result, the nations come. And this should remind us of the Great Commission and what Romans 10 says, where it says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. So missions done well, it needs lots of planning and training, but let's not overcomplicate it. What we need is faithful Bible teaching, faithful preaching, faithful teaching, faithful shepherding rooted in God's word. And it is easy to get distracted by methods and strategies. There's many out there. But our focus always needs to return to the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. That needs to be the focus of the church plants for them to grow. That's what we see in this passage. Let's not ever sell God's word short. It goes forth and the nations pour into worship. A time in the future that God promises to come but has not yet come. Verse 3 says, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So while chapter 4 is a hopeful message for us to hear, it was actually a message of judgment against the Israelites in Micah's time. Chapter 4 is actually connected to the end of chapter 3 by the conjunction and. Some translations don't have it, but if you look at the NASB, it has it. Chapter 4, as we're seeing, is, spoke a message of great hope, but one that would not be enjoyed by Micah's current audience. The end of chapter 3 is a sentence against the wicked rulers of the house of Jacob. Listen to chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. 
Who builds Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity? Verse 11, its heads will give judgment for a bribe, and its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of runs, and the mountain of the house of a wooded height. You see the reversal from the heap of runs at the end of chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 4, emerges the mountain of God. The rulers of Micah time had become crooked. All that was straight was no longer. They demanded a bribe for what they did. Even the priests and the prophets were corrupt and demanded money for what they were supposed to do for free. Those who were to protect and serve the people of God were now using their positions to exploit and to take advantage of the people. This sounds a lot like what we work in in Cambodia, and I'm sure you can pick out examples here in the United States as well. But a time will come with God himself will judge the peoples. The corrupt rulers of Micah's time and our time will one day be replaced by the righteous and just and perfect rule of God. No more will we despair of inequality and corruption. The result of God's rule will be that weapons of war will no longer be needed. One day when Christ returns and the kingdoms of the world are no more, there will be no more fear of rebellion. Weapons of war will no longer be needed. The sword and the spear which stood for symbols of battle and war during Micah's time, but instead they will be beaten into plowshares and pruning hooks. Farmers will finally get their day in the spotlight. In 2014, the U.S. spent $618 billion on the military. War is expensive, but it's necessary in our present evil time. But one day, it will no longer be needed. Back in my hometown of Greenfield, Illinois, there is a Vietnam War veteran. His name is Steve Hopper, and he has started being part of this program, which started. It's called our war without heroes. And what it does is it takes Vietnam veterans back to Vietnam. And as it says, the war without heroes, so a lot of them are struggling with closure in the way that they were reaccepted into society, into society or not so reaccepted into society. So he is part of this program and he leads groups and they go around to different places where they fought and they try to get closure. After all of these years, war has a heavy price on the lives of people. But can you imagine a time when war will be no more? When the world will have no threat of terrorism, of Al-Qaeda or ISIS or communist North Korea. Not even the slightest threat of war will exist one day under the complete and perfect rule of Christ. The end of verse 3 says, neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, even when wars are not going on, training for war is still going on. You must always be ready. You must always be studying. You must always be training. You never know when the enemy may attack. But a time for peace will come when Christ returns that not even the need to study and prepare for war will be. Wars will end and peace will be forever and ever. Verse 4 says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. One commentator writes, the scope is vast, peoples and nations, 
in verse 3. But the benefit is particular, each man. The peace is universally present, but individually enjoyed. And isn't this like our God? He does not lose sight of particular people in the crowd. He does not see huge blobs of people, but instead he sees individual Pacific persons. What a great promise for the persecuted church of Cambodia and throughout the world. What a time to look forward to. The vine and the fig tree were symbols of peace and prosperity in Micah's time. You enjoyed the fruit of the vine and the fig tree while sitting in the shade that it provided. And notice that the scene is this earth, but restored in the way it was before the fall in Genesis 3, but this time without the possibility of rebellion against God's rule. And this doesn't happen because of passivism or because the second commandment has been revoked. The reason this happens is because the Lord of hosts has spoken. The Lord of hosts refers to the armies of heaven under the command of God. This time of righteous judgment and peace becomes a reality because the Lord's armies have brought it about, and they will guard the peace. It will continue because the armies of the Lord will guard and protect the peace. One army will remain when all other armies are gone, and it is the army of the Lord. It will protect the kingdom of God and the people of God without fail. What do we do with this glorious promise? There is a lot to look forward to, but what about living and serving God in a world that doesn't resemble this yet? In verse 5, I think Micah actually applies the first four verses for it, before it. Look at what it says in verse 5. For all the peoples walk after the name of their God, but we, we will walk after the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. As I said earlier, Micah did not minister in easy times. Let's look at some of what he had to put up with day to day. There was rampant idolatry and the looming judgment of God because of it. Chapter 2 says the people are awake at night thinking up evil and then when morning comes, they go and commit it. The leaders and the rich are using their power to seize fields that don't belong to them. The people tell Micah in chapter 2, verse 6, Do not preach of judgment. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. They say his preaching is too harsh. Don't speak judgment. Speak things that make us comfortable and praise the current life we're already living. The message the people want to hear, it says in chapter 2, verse 11, they want to hear one of wine and strong drink. So instead of a preacher, the people would prefer that the preacher act as a beer and liquor salesman. They want to listen to someone tell them about the benefits of drinking and partying. In the village in Cambodia, I think one of the hardest things to do is to reach adult men. One time, my wife and I, we were driving from our village to Phnom Penh, and at the time, several villages over, there was another foreign man, and he had a Cambodian wife, and we would drive by there sometimes. He worked at the airport, so he would, he would be there sometimes. Sometimes he wouldn't be, but we were driving by there one time, and he was out partying with these other Cambodian men, and they were sitting at this table, and they were drinking beer together and looking like they were having a really good time, and... Soko looked at me and she said, man, I, I, wish, um, I wish you could do that and, and gather Cambodian men in that way. <laughs> look, at, look at the good time they're having. 
And I said, yeah, it would be great. The problem is the men aren't interested in God's word, but if you buy beer for them, then they would be more than happy to come and, and drink with you. And this is exactly what Micah was putting up during his time. The people didn't want to hear God's word. They didn't want a message of judgment. What they wanted was for someone to tell them about the benefits of wine and strong drink. That seems to be the message that is cross-cultural, not, not bound by a particular time and place. <laughs> In chapter 3, the ruler said to tear the skin off their own people. They did not care about even their own. Instead of offering protection, the rulers took advantage of their people without the slightest care. The priests still operated, but now they taught for a price. The prophets no longer listened to God, but practiced divination for money. All the while, the people say, no disaster shall come upon us. And yet, all of that would not determine how Micah and the remnant of God's people would live. Everyone around them may be walking in the name of their God, but they, Micah and the remnant of God's people, would walk after the name of the Lord forever and ever. In our village, I see a big Buddhist temple dominating life. The same could be said for most villages. Government corruption is very present. The rich taking advantage of the poor is very present. A lack of interest in God's word is very present and alive and well. Just like in Micah's time. Micah sees a vision of what the kingdom of God will look like in the future. And in light of that, he would walk after God in faithfulness now. And isn't that what we are called to? That is what our Cambodian brothers and sisters are called to, and that is what your church is called to as well. To hold on to the reality of God's coming kingdom in its fullness and in all of its glory. To hold on to that vision and that reality while working and living in a time when we only taste a small bit of it each day. You know, in Micah's day, the kingdom of God seemed rather significant a very small country in the Middle East that was about ready to be ran over by its enemies. Things in Micah's time would get a lot worse before they started to get better. But he had a larger vision for what God was doing, much larger than even his own present situation or what he could even see in his own lifetime. Most of us as missionaries, and it's true on our Cambodian team, we have a heart for church planning, we go and we want to see church planet, churches planted. We want to see them grow and to flourish, to grow in size, to grow in depth, and to grow in, in strength, to see people mature. But often what we experience, it doesn't look like the, the glorious flow of people and that we see pictured flowing up to the mountain of the Lord in this passage, increasingly longing to worship God and to know his word. Instead, sometimes the churches we work with shrink. Sometimes the leaders have conflict with each other. Sometimes we have conflict with them, and they have conflict with us. But we must keep in mind the present reality and the future reality as we work. The Lord's prayer will be answered. The kingdom of God will come. It is happening now. It may not be happening at the speed or the way that we want, but it is happening we should long for the mountain of God to be fully established, for people to flow into the house of God, 
for people to long to know God and, to, and his word and to walk faithfully in his ways, for a time of peace and justice to come. And this vision can help us to, for, to serve faithfully, to serve in hope, to serve in expectation while we work in the present reality that we face day to day. So as I conclude, let us not lose sight of the great end of history when God will rule with justice and mercy, when peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation will praise God for all eternity. Let us have confidence in the word of God. It is what causes the people of God to come in, to believe, to flourish, to grow. Let's be confident in the gospel. It draws people against the natural flow of things. Its power is shocking and undeniable, like a river flowing uphill, drawing people into the church with magnetic force. And as we take time to meditate and apply this word to our hearts, let us think about the power of the gospel. Let us believe it, preach it, and teach it. And now let us give, I want to give some time to pray on that thought, to think about the hope that we have in the gospel for our own personal lives, to think about it in your own church and in your own community and on the mission field in Cambodia and in the other countries where your church supports missionaries. Can you just take some time now to meditate on that and to pray on that thought, the power of the gospel, the glorious expectation that we have of people flowing up to worship God on his mountain. Let's think on that and pray on that.